Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it, brother. And good morning to my church family. It's good to see all of you here this morning. It's uh, especially exciting to look over here at the Grinnell Corner and see all of the Grinnell kids and spouses and grandkids. It just brings a smile to my face to see all of you here together. It's fun. I want to tell you a true story. There was a 23-year-old man who was enjoying his graduation vacation at Yellowstone National Park. And uh, when he was looking around, he saw all the hot springs. Anybody been to Yellowstone? Been to Yellowstone? There's hot springs everywhere in Yellowstone. And he thought, I could use a good soak. Well, but there's something they call hot potting. And it's actually forbidden. It's illegal because... There's a really good reason for that. You know why? You will die. That's a good reason for not doing something, right? Well, still, this was his college graduation trip, and I guess he thought that he was so well-educated that it would be okay to break a rule. So he left the safety of the boardwalks. You have boardwalks around all these things. And he cruised up a hill and looked for a private uh, hot potting or hot pot soaking spot. What could possibly go wrong? Well... He went to this particular geyser, and uh, it was recorded on video, and the man is actually seen dipping his foot in to, to, uh, to try to see what the temperature is and, and whether he needed to ease his way in or whatever. Well, he slipped, and he fell into this water. Well, this is not just hot water. This is acidic hot water, okay? And that was the beginning of the end. Now, Hannah, you were a chemistry major. What happens when you when you, uh, when you put something into boiling hot acidic water, it basically goes away, right? Right? Okay. So um, when the recovery team reached the spring, the water had already finished its work. There were no remains remaining. And the park superintendent stated the obvious. This tragic event must remind all of us to follow the regulations. The college graduates certainly are no exception. What could possibly go wrong? It's a question that we do well to ask sometime in our lives, huh? The reality is we have a lot of warnings in life. And we have a lot of rules and regulations that are based on those warnings to tell us what could possibly go wrong. So sometimes we don't even really have to ask the question because we know it's been answered. And how about this one? Uh, the more treacherous overlooks in the Grand Canyon are protected by fences and signs like this one. And I know you probably can't read what it says on there, so let me read it for you. It is 3,000 feet to the bottom and no undertaker to meet you. Take no chances. There is a difference between bravery and just plain ordinary foolishness. So in the Grand Canyon, some of these spectacular overlooks have small plateaus that tourists toss coins onto, you know, like they do in a wishing well, they'll toss coins. Well, there's a little plateau, it's not far away, and they're toss, they toss coins, okay? Well, one guy um, had a great idea, at least what he thought was a great idea. He climbed over the fence with a bag, and he jumped across to one of these precarious coin-covered plateaus, and apparently it was within relatively easy leaping distance, and he filled the bag with coins. What could possibly go wrong? Well, when he began to jump back, he ran into another law. And this was uh, one of those laws of physics that's kind of indisputable. 
this entrepreneur had increased his mass, right? He had a bag full of coins, and the force required to lift himself against the pull of gravity was now greater. The heavy bag of coins weighed down his jump, and the birds were treated to a sight of him falling 3,000 feet to the floor below, followed by a shower of coins. It's unlikely because sometimes we think the rules shouldn't or don't apply to us, as this guy apparently did. But I wondered if this guy had seen a sign like this, if it might have changed his mind about acquiring those coins. Gravity, it's not just a good idea, it's the law, right? What could possibly go wrong? Another way to look at this is, what were they thinking, right? How about this? What do you think this cat, huh? This cat says, I can see no way in which this carefully laid plan could ever fail. Not. How about these guys? Got to love these guys. There's, there's the two guys with, with the ladder, and they're, they're actually leaning on a ledge, a, just a little bit of a ledge, and the one guy's holding it. Don't worry, bro, I got you. What could possibly go wrong? And then there's the other one. And I don't know if this was staged or not, but if it was real, you got to really wonder about the sanity, let alone the intelligence of these guys. I guess it's too heavy to move this thing down the stairs, so they're actually going to lower it over into to those two. There's three guys holding it at the top, see? And there's two guys down below. What could possibly go wrong? This morning, we're going to look at some of the ways that we can answer this question from a spiritual perspective. What could possibly go wrong? Because just as obvious as it is to us when looking at these foolish decisions that disasters just ahead for these people we can figure it out pretty quickly can't we we have to realize that the Word of God gives us many many warnings that we ignore at our own spiritual peril in our house church meetings uh, we're studying Hebrews and a few weeks ago we came across this verse Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 and it says therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. It's clear that the writer of Hebrews here is addressing fellow believers. After all, he says, we, we must pay closer attention. So let's remember this. Yes, we are saved as well as sanctified by grace. We grow in Christ because his Holy Spirit equips us and prepares us to grow. But God, in his loving wisdom, gives us these warnings. Why? To protect us. To protect us. Now, the context of this passage in Hebrews is that Jesus is greater. We go through two, three chapters talking about how Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. His covenant is the greatest. And consequently, what Jesus says through his word is supreme. In verse 3, the writer of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3 identifies in no uncertain terms what it is that we've heard it says in verse 1 we've heard this it says how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to by us who heard so when verse 1 tells us that we have to pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it it's referring to the gospel it's referring to the good news of this great salvation and this great salvation is declared to us by the living word Jesus himself chapter 1 
of Hebrews, we read this. <coughs> Excuse me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the idea here is God has spoken to us. And the word he speaks to us now is through his son, Jesus. And it is supreme. It is above all else. So the logic here in verse 1 of chapter 2, which we read a moment ago, is that we should pay attention to it. We should pay attention to it. If God has spoken to us by his son, as it tells us in chapter 1, his son, who is the heir of all things, it describes him, his son, the agent through whom God created the world, if God has spoken to us by this same son, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and this same son is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, then think about this. It makes sense that anything he has to say is something we should listen to carefully. We could know what could possibly go wrong in our spiritual lives by listening carefully to what Jesus says, what the Word of God tells us. After all, he's the maker. He wrote the owner's manual. He's the upholder. He's the sustainer. It says all these things about Jesus in that first chapter of Hebrews. He keeps everything working. Think about this. The earth would spin off its axis if Jesus didn't keep it in place. I think we should think that gives Jesus a little bit of credibility. He's worthy of our attention. His word is worthy of our attention. And verse 1 of chapter 2 is just one of the warnings that we see about what could possibly go wrong if we don't pay attention to what Jesus says. And that particular verse, it says we could drift away. We could drift away. We could let his words leak out of our minds and forget or ignore or neglect. So the idea is that we derive no benefit, we don't learn anything from what God has spoken unless we listen and listen carefully, unless we pay closer attention. The truths of religion, it says in Barnes Notes, will not benefit us unless we give heed to them. It will not save us that the Lord Jesus has come and spoken to men unless we are disposed to listen. Books will not benefit us unless we read them. Medicine, unless we take it. Nor will the fruits of the earth sustain our lives, however rich and abundant they may be, if we disregard and neglect them. So it is with the truths of religion. There is truth enough to save the world, but the world disregards and despises it. That's what that guy at Yellowstone Park, and that's what the guy at the Grand Canyon did. He, they disregarded, and essentially because they disregarded, they despised the truth of the warnings that they had, and it cost them their lives. The rules were there for a really good reason. That's how serious many of the scriptural warnings that we have are. Disregarding them can cost much, even our spiritual lives. 
And the book of Hebrews, as we've noted in our house church as we've studied this book together, is full of warnings. And not just Hebrews, but many other portions of Scripture. How about Proverbs? There's a lot of good warnings in Proverbs. And here's a clear and vivid and honestly kind of disgusting warning in Proverbs. Maybe some of you know what I'm referring to. It's in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, the Word of God touches on the very real issues of life. We can open our Bibles with absolute confidence that God will use His Word to speak to us. He'll speak comfort in our suffering. He'll give strength when we are weak. He'll give us principles for guidance. We can trust the Word of God to give us instructions on righteous and holy living and warnings against sin. So the Bible's very clear about how we are to look at sin itself. As believers in Christ, the Word gives us tools to kill sin. The Word gives us tools to guard our hearts from patterns of evil. Because the Word is so clear about the sinfulness of sin, the inspired writers of Scripture don't soften the blow at all. They don't pretty it up in any way. So think about this imagery because it's disgusting on purpose. It is. It's disgusting, but it's disgusting on purpose. A dog returns to its vomit. Do we understand why a dog returns to its vomit? He's going to eat it. Yeah, that's disgusting. Let's be honest, though. Any of us who've had dogs have seen it, right? And we've seen worse, too. They eat things a lot worse than their own vomit. Now, as disgusting as the thought is of returning to your own vomit, it should be just as disgusting for those who are in Christ to consider returning to a sin again. So this is a warning. What could possibly go wrong? This is a warning. The Word reminds us how incredibly odious to God that our sin is. It's just as disgusting as a dog eating its own vomit. It's revolting. It's repulsive. It's nauseating. It's sickening. It's foul. It's nasty, right? None of these descriptions is too strong. So Proverbs tells us how stupid it is. Stupid to return to the same sin. It's like finding pleasure or even finding the sustenance of food in our own vomit. Six days before his scheduled release, there was a convict that broke out of a Portland jail, and he enjoyed 12 hours of freedom before being caught again at a nearby jack-in-the-box. That math genius had done 97% of his sentence. Stupid, right? Stupid. Like returning to his own vomit. I don't mean jack-in-the-box. The Bible can be pretty blunt about stupidity. So we've noticed this morning how much of life and how much of Scripture is full of warnings. It's full of cautions. For example, how often have we heard the very clear warning, don't drink and drive? We hear it. It's, it's in advertising campaigns. We see signs. But then how often do you hear or read of a drunk driver who causes an accident that kills someone? How about the danger of drugs? We hear this often too. And then we hear about someone who dies of an overdose or they became addicted and in some way they ruined their life. 
So not paying attention to warnings or even those admonitions on how we are to live can have serious and sometimes even spiritually deadly consequences. Cautions and warnings can be our friends. They exist to keep us well. And sometimes they exist to keep us alive. The same is true of our life in Christ. While we always, and this bears repeating, we always, always rely completely on the grace of God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for our eternal destiny and even for shaping us into his image. We Christians often do stupid things to mess up our lives on earth. There's always redemption. There's always grace. We can always come back. But sometimes God is not under any obligation to remove the consequences temporally in this time, even though he removes the eternal consequences of our sin. We can all think of things we've done. We can think of things we've not done, things we've seen others do or not do, things that had at least some short-term negative consequences or sometimes even long-term life-altering consequences. Some of you even now are thinking of people, things you've seen, maybe things you've done yourself that had consequences when you ignored the clear warnings of the Word of God. So the Word of God is first and foremost a book that reveals God's love plan for us. It's first and foremost a book that details His eternal plans for our salvation. But we have to admit, the Word of God is also a book that is full of cautions and warnings. You see, God doesn't just tell us in this book how we can be saved, but He tells us how to live godly lives for Him. And in doing that, escape the consequences of what we'd otherwise have to classify as foolish or even stupid behavior. So I do believe that in this fallen world that we live in, just about guarantees we will have some measure of trouble, illness, or hardship in our lives. I also believe that by walking wholeheartedly with Jesus, by devoting our lives to him and listening carefully to what he says, we can escape at least some of the things we'd otherwise have to deal with in life. So there's no guarantee of total uninterrupted bliss in this life, even when we're in Christ, even when we're believers. But things do go better. Things do go better when we follow the Lord and when we don't do the stupid things that we are warned about so clearly and so often in Scripture. The Word of God is clear that there are consequences for some of these stupid things. And if you think I'm being a little too harsh by calling them stupid things, let me note that stupid is actually a pretty good translation in some of the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at here in a moment. So foolish is not an exact synonym for stupid, but it is close. Foolish is resulting from or showing a lack of sense. I think the Grand Canyon guy... Yeah, definitely. Ill-considered, the, uh, the guy at Yellowstone, definitely. Unwise, as in a foolish action, a foolish speech. It's lacking forethought or caution. And, of course, folly is another word the Bible uses for stupidity or foolishness. We read, again, in Proverbs, beginning with uh, chapter 5, verse 21, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Now, here, 
has are the things that we do. It's our conduct. It's the way we live our lives, the choices we make. And then this proverb goes on to say, starting again with verse 22 of chapter 5, his own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, foolishness, stupidity, he will go astray. Another version says he'll be led astray by his own great folly. Now, the immediate context of this particular proverb is, is actually adultery, which Scripture clearly labels as foolishness, not to mention sin. But I believe these uh, things in this passage can really apply to almost any kind of sin because the terrible consequences of sin outlined in several verses before the passage we just read should be enough to motivate a person to avoid it. In this passage, we see even higher motivations to avoid sin. First of all, God sees. God sees. So it's not just the consequences if we follow that path toward sin, but God sees. He sees our hearts. He sees our actions. And if that's not enough, we also see the warning that sin ensnares us, just like a rope can tie us up. And what's more, we can be led astray, it says, from God's standard by our own foolishness and our own folly. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1 reads, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof, the NIV says correction, is stupid. There it is right there in Proverbs 12, 1. Stupid. Cautions and warnings can be reproof, they can be correction, and to hate them, Scripture tells us, is stupid. We read in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So this is written to believers, right? And as believers, the operative phrase that we need to pay attention to should be at one time. In other words, it's the idea, you used to be this way. You used to be foolish before you began following Christ. And you shouldn't be this way anymore. We read in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. And then in verse 17, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. King David said this to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. So here's Solomon as a young boy, young man, when he received this word from his father. And you know what? Solomon got that message. He got that message, at least for much of his life, because in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 6, he wrote this, Do not forsake wisdom. She will protect you, love her, and she will watch over you. So it's clear from Scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning 
of wisdom. It's also clear that our primary source for this wisdom is the Word of God. And that brings me to one clearly stupid thing that Christians do to mess up their lives and Christians do to never ask the question what could possibly go wrong. And that is neglect the Word of God. Psalm 119, very familiar passage. I'm going to read verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. And then here's the foundational verse for Bible Bowl. Verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Now, can we say that? We might be able to say something like that to ourselves if we're able to see how many of these rules and regulations and and even things in Scripture that we sometimes chafe under, if we begin to see that they're there for our well-being. They're there for our protection. But our tendency, in our fallen state especially, is to see rules and laws as restrictive, as holding us back from having fun. I can't have fun if I do that. keeps us from doing what we want to do. What could possibly go wrong? The psalmist didn't see it that way. One commentary on this passage said this, Most of us chafe under rules, for we think they restrict us from doing what we want. At first glance, then, it may seem strange to hear the psalmist talk of rejoicing in following God's statutes as much as in great riches. Isn't that true? Rejoicing in God's statutes as much, Hey, I've just won a million dollars, but I love God's law even more than that. But God's laws were given to free us. They were given to free us to be all he wants us to be. They restrict us from doing what might cripple us and what might keep us from being our best. God's guidelines help us follow his path and avoid paths that lead to destruction. So God's word, God's word learned, listened to, and obeyed can help keep us from doing stupid things from doing foolish things. More than that, it helps us to do godly things. So there's not just the negative, it keeps us from doing stupid things, but it helps us to do godly things, good things. So for us to ignore his word, for us to leave it on the shelf, for us to not take the time to know it and to know it well only leads to foolishness. Now the word neglect in this passage means to mislay or to be oblivious of from want of memory or attention. That's the key. If we neglect God's Word, it's not because we can't get our hands on a Bible. All of us have a lot of Bibles. We have many in our homes. Most of us carry a Bible around in our pocket on our phones. The problem is we don't pay adequate attention to it. We don't give it the place in our Christian lives it deserves. We need to study. We need to meditate. And then there's the other part of our neglect, and this is in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice 
is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And that's the second part of how we can sometimes neglect God's Word. If we hear the Word of God, if we know His Word, and then we don't put it into practice, we're just as foolish as if we'd never read His Word at all. Do you think the guy who fell to his death in the Grand Canyon read the warning sign? It's likely he couldn't have missed it because these kind of signs are all over the place. He just chose to ignore it. Doesn't apply to me. Not going to happen to me. Being hearers of the word only and not doers or neglecting to read the word of God at all makes us foolish and has the capacity to mess up our lives. The word of God is the foundation for building up our lives in Christ. There's another key component in building our lives in Christ, and it relates to the second stupid thing I want to mention that Christians do to mess up their lives, and that is forsake the fellowship. Now, I'm not going to spend but a few minutes on this because we we talked at length about this uh, a few weeks ago, last time I preached. But often you'll hear journalists and economists talking about the leading economic indicators. You've heard that phrase before? These are the things that are not necessarily the be-all and end-all of how the economy is doing. In other words, they don't necessarily tell the whole story. But they do give us a good idea, and they're often very close to the mark. Now, if I want to begin to get a clue to how someone's doing with the Lord, and I don't really know them that well, if I begin to wonder how their walk with Christ is, one of the key leading spiritual indicators is this. Are they in church regularly? I mean, are they here a lot more often than they're not? Now, clearly, you can be a regular church attender and still have a weak relationship with the Lord. And I want to be clear, I'm not being legalistic here. I know there's definitely legitimate reasons for missing church. There's seasons of life in which it's difficult or almost impossible for you to be here on a regular basis. But with those caveats, I do have to tell you, when I think back on Christians who end up doing stupid things to mess up their lives, I can very often think back and note that their church attendance, while at one time may have been steady and regular, has slipped into sporadic at best. When once you would have seen this person nearly every Sunday and maybe nearly every Wednesday or Thursday night, now this person's here maybe once a month or less. You see them less and less until they finally drift away from the church. And I'll tell you this too. Once a person drifts away from the church, it's almost inevitable that they will also begin to drift away from the Lord. Now, elders, TCF leaders, haven't you seen this? Haven't we seen that to be true time and again? Now, usually, if you challenge somebody like this, these people will say something like, well, I spend a lot of time on my own with the Lord. That's the implication there, that they don't think they need church to keep them on track in their spiritual life. I can go it alone. I'm the lone ranger. I'm just fine. I believe that approach is incredibly naive at best and really stupid at worst. I believe it's virtually impossible to be a Christian in isolation. The Word of God doesn't teach us independence. It teaches us interdependence with the body of Christ. We need each other. We need each other's encouragement. We need each other's support. We need each other's admonishment and correction. We need each other's wisdom and perspective because by ourselves, we can be deceived. Now, again, we looked at length at this a few weeks ago, so I'll stop there on this point. 
Another reason we need each other and we need the Word of God is because of the third stupid thing that I thought of that Christians do to mess up their lives. I want to look at just one more before we close, and that is we underestimate the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now this is certainly true when we're very vulnerable spiritually, these things. But it's also true even when we're not, even when we're doing well in our walk with the Lord. We underestimate the pull of the world in our lives, the things of the world. One commentary said this about the passage that we just read. The writer was not dissatisfied with the spiritual state of his readers, much less did he question or doubt their salvation. On the contrary, his readers may be even viewed as having matured in their faith. John, who wrote this, wrote precisely because their present state was so good, but he wished to warn them about the dangers which always exist, no matter how far one has advanced in his Christian walk. That's pretty sobering. No matter how far someone has advanced in their Christian walk. A lot of us have walked with the Lord for many years, and these warnings apply to us just as well. The world here is seen as something that is hostile to God. It's seen as a seductive influence, an influence that we as believers must continually resist. The world competes for our love. We can't love both the world and the Lord. James chapter 4, verse 4 says that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. That's pretty strong, too. So here in these scriptures, the world means a system that's in competition with God. Some people think that worldliness, and that's the term that we use to describe people who seem to love the world, but some people think that worldliness is limited to our behavior. Of course, it's true that worldliness is often illustrated by our behavior. That is, the people we associate with, the places we go, the activities that we enjoy, the things we do and say, maybe how we spend our money. The truth is that worldliness begins in our hearts, and it shows up in our behavior eventually. So worldliness, according to 1 John, is characterized by three attitudes. It's characterized by the cravings of sinful man, that is, being preoccupied with gratifying sinful desires. It's characterized by the lust of the eyes, that is, accumulating things, being materialistic, and it's the boastful pride of life that characterizes worldliness, obsession with our own status, with our own importance. That's the world's awful anti-trinity. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In other words, sensuality, materialism, and pride. James 4.4, 4, let me read the whole verse. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So friendship with the world, we see, is the same as sharing the world's values. James, in this uh, verse, rebukes his hearers for spiritual unfaithfulness. He uses the very harsh, we might think harsh, comparison of adultery. It's blunt. 
It's shocking, isn't it? It's kind of like the dog and its vomit. But it's intended to jar the readers awake to their true spiritual condition. Just as saying that the things we do to mess up our lives can be stupid is meant to be blunt and harsh. To have a warm, familiar attitude toward this evil world is to be on good terms with God's enemy. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. What could possibly go wrong? You could lose the war against your soul. Let's not be naive, folks. Let's not think the warnings don't apply to us. Let's be wise believers, wise in the purely biblical sense, and not foolish or stupid. Let's not underestimate the world. Let's not forsake the fellowship, and let's not neglect the Word of God. Let's not do these stupid things to mess up our lives. And as it said in the verse we read near the beginning, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the warnings that you have put into your word for us. Warnings meant to keep us safe. Warnings meant to put curbs in our lives. Warnings meant to help us, Father, to walk the straight and narrow path. Warnings to protect us from the evils of the world, the attraction of the world. Warnings to protect us from the wiles of the enemy of our souls. Father, we're grateful that you loved us enough to put these warnings in there. We're grateful, Father, that even when we are stupid, even when we make stupid decisions and do stupid things, that your grace is sufficient, Father, and you can uh, redeem those things, Father God. But, Father, we don't even want to have to go there because you're so faithful to bring these great warnings to us so that we don't have to suffer the consequences of so many things. So, Father, we're grateful for these things, and we ask you, Heavenly Father, to help us not to neglect your word, help us not to forsake the fellowship, and help us not to underestimate the world as we walk wholeheartedly with you. In Jesus' name, amen.